thank you to the Rural Alberta Advantage. You're listening to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast, and I'm your host, Rick Cole. Every week, I take you on a nostalgic trip back in time 50 years to 1970, and we report on the hockey news and sporting news from that time. This week, we're looking at the week of May 18th to 24th, 1970 and a busy news week it was our podcast is made possible by the support of our two sponsors newspapers.com is the world's largest newspaper archive that's online and their support's been crucial to our research the Breakwall Brewing Company is located in beautiful downtown Port Coburn, Ontario, and even during this pandemic, they're still producing fine craft beers and excellent takeout pub food. When this is all over, I'd love to get together with any of you listeners at the Breakwall for a beer and a burger. In last week's show, some of the stories we discussed were we covered the two remaining hockey playoff series, the Memorial Cup won by Montreal Junior Canadiens, and the Calder Cup, which is the American Hockey League's championship trophy, and that was won by the Buffalo Bisons. We had shocking news out of Boston just four days after they won the Stanley Cup in which coach Harry Sinden inexplicably resigned from the team to go into private business. And we learned about Pittsburgh Penguins fine young player Michelle Briere being severely injured in an automobile accident near his hometown of Millardic, Quebec. Now this week there is a lot of hockey news again as the season had just ended and a lot of teams were tying up loose ends and the National Hockey League had imposed a trade deadline to freeze rosters before the upcoming Buffalo-Vancouver expansion draft. So I'll have a lot of stuff to get to. Uh, We'll have more news on the condition of Michel Briere as he lies unconscious in a Montreal hospital. The fate of the Oakland Seals becomes even more convoluted as more rumors abound about what actually will happen with the team and a trial to determine ownership got underway. And another NHL star, a really big name, ends up in a hospital as a result of an off-ice incident. Lots more to get to as well, so let's get after it. We begin the week's news with reports on the condition of Pittsburgh Penguins young star, Michelle Briere. You'll remember that at the end of last week's episode, we were reporting that Briere was severely injured in a single vehicle auto accident near Millardic, Quebec. By Monday, Michelle was listed in satisfactory condition, incredibly, in a Montreal hospital after having undergone surgery to remove a blood clot on his brain. The uh, doctor who performed the surgery, Dr. Claude Bertrand, he is the head of uh, neurosurgery at the Montreal Hospital in which Briere was uh, admitted. Uh, He stated that originally he had given Michelle only a 50-50 chance of survival, but after the surgery, he now felt that Briere had a 50-50 chance of a complete recovery. A hospital press release stated that Briere's condition was in fact still serious, 
but that he was uh, resting comfortably and that he was making satisfactory progress. The doctor was uh, said to be optimistic at the time, but there was uncertainty if Michelle would regain all of his faculties. As the week wore on, various news outlets published reports that Briere remained in a coma that may last as long as two weeks, and that was a time frame set by officials at the hospital. United Press International reported that Briere was, however, out of danger, and they also said on Tuesday that he appeared to be coming out of a coma. That very same day, the Vancouver Province was the first newspaper, uh, at least that we had the opportunity to look at, to openly speculate about the doubt around Briere's future in hockey. But they had no new information. They just came out and asked the question, is he ever going to be able to play again? Doesn't look that way. On Wednesday, the Pittsburgh Penguins uh, teammate of Michel Briere, Jean Pronovo, who's also from the province of Quebec, visited him in the Montreal hospital. But the star right winger of the Penguins declined to make any statement or report on what he was able to observe about Briere's condition. Previously, visitation had been limited to just close family and Dick Koss, who was the Penguin scout in Quebec, who had convinced the team to draft Michelle in the first place. By Friday, the hospital was reporting that Briere was responding somewhat to simple touching, which seemed to be a very positive sign at this point. Uh, given that the press release said that they didn't expect him to regain full consciousness for a week to 10 days. So this looked pretty good. The hospital statement said that Briere had received injuries to brain cells located in the brain stem and that it usually takes a couple of weeks for these cells to begin to act properly again after such a trauma. But the hospital went on to say that Briere's heart and his blood pressure were both very good, very normal readings, and it was just a matter of time until the injured part of the brain that controls consciousness would repair himself and Briere would show more signs of consciousness. Penguins owner Donald Parsons stepped up and there was an announcement at the end of the week that said that the Pittsburgh Penguins will provide a lifetime of financial security for Briere in the event that the player doesn't recover fully from his injuries. Penguins' new president, Jack Riley, said that the Par Parsons told him that the team would definitely take care of Michelle in the event that he would be unable to play hockey ever again. As the week ended, reports had Michelle making slight, almost imperceptible progress as hockey fans in Pittsburgh held out hope that their new sports hero could return to the game he loves. In other major news with the Penguins, the team announced at a Thursday press conference that General Manager Jack Riley had been elevated to the post of the Executive Director of the Hockey Club. And as a follow-up move, the Penguins were more than happy to confirm that they had retained the services of Coach Red Kelly for at least another season, with Red also taking on Riley's former duties as General Manager. No length of a contract for either team was announced at that time. 
The Penguins say that Red Kelly will have almost complete and autonomous control over the Pittsburgh hockey operation, while Riley concentrates on matters at the executive level. Red is also said to have received a handsome increase in pay, and that was specifically aimed at preventing him from heading home to Canada to join the Toronto Maple Leafs or to be tempted by the coaching vacancy in the Boston Bruins organization. The National Hockey League this week named its first and second All-Star teams, and there were two unanimous choices. With 180 points each, goalie rookie Tony Esposito and young Boston superstar defenseman Bobby Orr both were elected unanimously to the NHL's first All-Star team. The other defenseman on the team is another youngster, Brad Park of the New York Rangers. The center, Phil Esposito of Boston, with Gordie Howe of the Detroit Red Wings on right wing and Bobby Hull of the Blackhawks on the left. The second team contained maybe a couple of surprises. No surprise with Eddie Jackman of the New York Rangers as the goalkeeper, but the defense, a couple of fellas that maybe not have been widely thought to be all-stars, Carl Brewer, returning to the National Hockey League after years of retirement. Uh, Now he was with the Detroit Red Wings. And Jacques LaPerriere, Montreal's steady, if not unspectacular, uh, rear guard made the defense team. Stan Makita, no surprise there, was uh, the second team all-star center. Johnny McKenzie of the Bruins, finally getting some well-deserved recognition, was the right winger. And Frank Mahovlich of Detroit was listed at left wing. Now, here's a story that probably will have repercussions for years to come if we know anything about the guy that uh, is featured in the story. We're talking about R. Allen Eagleson, who is the executive director of the National Hockey League Players Association. And speaking at a meeting of the Rotary Club of Toronto this week, he charged on behalf of the association that there is rampant mismanagement at the upper levels of the National Hockey League and the association is urging drastic changes in the format of professional hockey. Eagleson said that while the association is recognizing the rights of management to operate their franchises in their own manner, he said that the players were deeply concerned over the effect of what they regarded as mismanagement of the game itself. Eagleson, now a lot bolder these recent weeks, especially with the trial of base, baseball players Kurt Flood, actually the lawsuit of baseball player Kurt Flood against Major League Baseball. Eagleson cited the disparity between the Eastern and Western divisions of the league and the problems that will undoubtedly beset the new franchises in Buffalo and Vancouver. The Players Association is recommending that more players be made available to the new expansion teams in the June expansion draft. 
Eagleson's recommendation is that the existing teams be allowed to protect only 12 players and that there be no draft and fill rule as has been the case in the previous expansion draft in 1967. The players also propose that the league end the practice of allowing a team to prevent a man from leaving his non-playing post at the end of his contract. This particular loophole has allowed the Bruins to list recently resigned coach Harry Sinden as some sort of untouchable entity and unable to be hired by any other NHL team. The Bruins basically told Harry, Harry, we're sad to see you leave us, but you're la- you're leaving hockey altogether. According to Eagleson, it does seem like a restraint of trade, doesn't it? Management, of course, says that it needs restrictions like this to prevent tampering. And in reality, what Eagleson is trying to get across is, is that the NHL managements do not trust their partners. And he could be on to something there. We have a lot of other news and rumors concerning rosters and other uh, items around the hockey news, and we'll get at that right now. The Penguins had some other injury news that they talked about this week. One was no surprise. Veteran goalie Les Binkley, who missed the final couple of games of the of the playoffs for the Penguins with a knee injury. Uh, he underwent surgery in a Pittsburgh hospital for removal of cartilage from the left knee. Everything went pretty well, we understand, and the Penguins say Les should be ready for training camp in September. Another Penguin, Keith McCurry, uh, had calcium, calcium posits removed from his left arm, and that also should heal completely. The American Hockey League's best goalkeeper this season was Jules Villemure of the Buffalo Bisons, who won it all. Jules, he belongs to the New York Rangers, and he's expected to get a shot with the Rangers next year, as there are strong rumors that Terry Sachuk was going to be traded or released. Well, Jules was also the best harness racer at Buffalo Raceway in this week's meet as he drove two winners. He took the fifth race piloting a horse called Landlord which paid 740 to win and he finished first in the seventh race with Uniform Joe and that had a larger payout of $16.40. Villamir was also named the American Hockey League's first all-star goalie this week. His Buffalo teammate Geek Trottier was named at right wing. Rookie center Jude Druin of the Montreal Voyageurs was the center. The left wing Doug Robinson of the Springfield Kings and the defensemen were Noel Price of Springfield and young Guy Lapointe of the Montreal Voyageurs. A lot of news and speculation coming out of Vancouver this week. In fact, the Vancouver papers are uh, showing that they're not going to take a second place seat to their counterparts in the East when talking about rumors and conjecture. The uh, first uh, item I guess we'd talk about would be General Manager Bud Poyle. Now, the Canucks own 51 players in their organization, but quite realistically, the overwhelming majority of those guys will not make the NHL. But there are a few. 
There are some complicated rules, however, that are upsetting Poyle and causing him to really look at making as many trades as he can. Apparently, some of these rules state that players that are owned by minor league teams, like the Canucks, they're not in the NHL yet. They won't be until after they pay their money in June, that these players could be repurchased or redrafted by the NHL teams for $30,000. So Poyle doesn't want to lose any assets without getting something in return, is trying to make trades for players he knows he won't be able to protect in that manner. Now one player Poyle has his eye on is in Portland with the Buckaroos of the Western Hockey League. That is young defenseman Dennis Kearns, who many figure is ready to take the next step up the ladder to the NHL. Another thorn in Poyle's side is the matter of indemnification to the Western Hockey League for the NHL franchise invading their territory. What the Canucks want to do is place a Western Hockey League farm team somewhere in Western Canada to replace the Vancouver franchise. The Western Hockey League, however, is not interested in having farm teams in either Edmonton or Calgary, the two proposed locations, and they're demanding a cool $1.2 million in indemnification. The owners of the Canucks, Metacor of Minneapolis, Minnesota, are not keen on forking over $1.2 million to a minor hockey league for what they consider is no reason at all. The Western Hockey League, in the meantime, says this is not about money. This is about not wanting to have teams that they would have to travel to in Calgary and Edmonton the costs would be prohibited for the Western Hockey League's West Coast teams. All the teams in the WHL at this point in time are on the West Coast. We mentioned earlier, talking about Alan Eagleson, about the sudden retirement from hockey by the Bruins coach Harry Sinden, and we discussed that at length last week. Now Harry says he may not yet be completely done with hockey. Harry this week in, in an interview with a Minneapolis newspaper left the door open to a return to the ice wars at some later date if, as he is quoted, selling houses is not my bag. North Stars general manager Ren Blair made it well known that he wants Sinden in the Minnesota organization in some capacity. Now after winning the Stanley Cup as a coach, the only job Sinden is likely to want in Minnesota is the one presently held by Ren Blair. There's one hitch to any plan that Sinden might have to return to the NHL at some point, and we talked about this in the uh, Eagleson article as well. Uh, the Bruins, what they did, they, they placed Sinden's name on their voluntary retired list. Now that list is for players who have retired and filed retirement papers with the National Hockey League, and it's to keep other teams from swooping in and enticing their retired players to come back with a hated rival. This rule was mainly in place when the Maple Leafs tried to entice Bernie Jeffrion when he first retired from Montreal to come back with them and they eventually 
tried to do it with Dickie Moore, but they went through the league's draft rules. Moore was not protected, and his voluntary retirement papers apparently weren't there, so the Maple Leafs drafted Dickie Moore. That's just a little background on this. Anyway, it was thought that this voluntary retired list applied only to players, but apparently... There's a loophole in the rule. No such designation as players only exists. So the Bruins decided to protect an asset by limiting Harry Sinden's options. I bet Harry didn't see that coming. Maybe he did have a plan to move. He isn't going to be do that, doing that now because any team that wants him will have to negotiate with the Bruins after they get permission from the Bruins, then they'll have to negotiate with Harry. I'd bet that if a smart lawyer got involved, Harry Sinden would end up being free to work wherever he wants if he really wants to. This is a situation similar to what Kurt Flood is suing Major League Baseball for. Kurt wants the right to be able to determine for himself in which city he plays his sport for pay. Major League Baseball doesn't want to do that. We'll talk a little more about that before the end of the podcast. National Hockey League President Clarence Campbell had a press conference this week after a routine meeting of the NHL Board of Governors. Campbell said that uh, one of the things that they've discussed that is in an effort to expand its player development capabilities, the league will expand its development program to several cities along the U.S. East Coast. Campbell said that player development teams will now be located in Boston, Hartford and New Haven, Connecticut, and Hempstead, New York, where the Nassau County Coliseum is uh, being built. Campbell says these teams will either be included in the American Hockey League or part of another professional league of some description. Campbell speculated, likely on very good authority, that the New York Rangers would be most interested in locating a farm team in the new Nassau County Coliseum in Hempstead. Ed Conrad of the uh, Philadelphia Daily News, and he's a guy who loves to speculate and uh, talk about rumors in the Daily News newspaper. He breathlessly reported on Wednesday that the Kings and Flyers were nearing the completion of a major trade that would be an even-up exchange of players that would include one or two more hockey men from each club. Conrad said that the Flyers would give up at least a young forward to the Kings for one of the Kings defensemen. Well, later that very afternoon, the teams did announce a trade. It wasn't the blockbuster that Eddie Conrad hinted at, but it was a straight one-for-one swap that saw the Flyers' 23-year-old right-winger Mike Byers go to the Kings for veteran defenseman Brent Hughes. Byers had been acquired last year from Toronto in the deal that sent Britt Selby back to the Maple Leafs, and he spent this past season in Quebec City with the Flyers' American Hockey League farm team, and he scored a credible 15 goals. Brent Hughes is original Los Angeles King, but he missed a lot of last season with injury, and he only managed one goal and seven assists. 
While this deal wasn't of the magnitude that Conrad had hidden at, there were reports that the Flyers were hoping to complete a much more significant trade before the Friday trade deadline. Jack Chevalier of the Philadelphia Inquirer reported that general manager Keith Allen wants very badly to deal one of his backup netminders, either Doug Favell or Dunk Wilson. He wants to get some badly needed scoring help in exchange for one of these assets as Keith Allen is very aware he's going to lose one of those two goalkeepers in the expansion draft. Conrad, meanwhile, speculated that the Flyers could be shipping Favell and Joe Watson, a defenseman, to the Boston Bruins, the organization to which both belonged before coming to Philadelphia in the 1967 expansion draft. Conrad says a deal is brewing where Boston would send a consistent goal scorer, not to be named yet, to the Flyers for the two players. Ed Conrad quoted General Manager Allen as saying that the Bruins had offered the Flyers veteran goalie Eddie Johnson and a fringe forward for Favell. Uh, the story also says that the reason that Favell and Watson are so attractive to the Bruins is because of, of all things, friendships. Favell and Boston's number one goalie, Jerry Cheevers, are both from St. Catharines, Ontario, and they've been teammates in the minor leagues in the past. Watson is known to be best friends with Bobby Orr, the Bruins' great superstar, and Bobby was best man at Watson's wedding last summer. Well, this story really doesn't have a lot of credibility because the Flyers are trying to shed a goaltender, not replace one. They would only trade Favell if they're getting back scoring help. Getting another netminder really doesn't solve any of their problems, especially one as good as Eddie Johnston. There is news out of Toronto this week. Uh, some pretty crazy or strange things going on with Leafs General Manager Jim Gregory, we'll find out. Uh, the Maple Leafs finally con confirmed on Thursday that two of the players they are going to receive from the Rangers as a payment for the Tim Horton deal last March are left winger Dennis Dupere, a young fellow who played for Omaha in the CHL last year. He's a former OHA Junior A Kitchener Ranger and the aforementioned American Hockey League All-Star right winger Guy Trache. At the same time, the Maple Leafs announced that they had exercised their right of repurchase to bring youngsters Rene Robert and Brad Selwood back to the Toronto system after they played last year for Vancouver in the Western Hockey League. Dan Proudfoot of the Toronto Globe and Mail was writing that the Maple Leafs were also very close to a trade that would send Chicago right-winger Jim Pappen, a former Maple Leaf, back to the team. Toronto was said to be offering Chicago forward Murray Oliver, but it appeared, according to Proudfoot, that the Hawks wouldn't bite on that bait. Remember, the trading deadline was coming up on Friday, and uh, the Leafs were working furiously to try and move assets that they would thought they might lose to Buffalo or Vancouver. The trading deadline came and went on Friday night and Saturday morning, Jim Gregory spoke to reporters and said he was frustrated. He was unable to make a deal 
and get anything that he thought he could help the team or get rid of anything that he thought he could get a return on. He said he worked the phones, but no deals were there for the Maple Leafs to be made. A little later that day, though, the St. Louis Blues announced that they had sent Jacques Plant, the great goalkeeper, to the Maple Leafs, and the announcement was made by the owner of the team, Sidney Solomon III. The interesting part of this is Solomon said he had no idea what the return for Plant would be, and in fact, he didn't know if it was uh, connected to the Tim Horton trade or not, as had been rumored all spring. The Maple Leafs finally confirmed on Sunday that Plant was coming to Toronto from the Blues, and the return was going to be the ever-elusive future considerations. Reporters found that Plant did talk with Toronto General Manager Jim Gregory on Saturday. Jacques apparently told Gregory that he was really happy to be coming to Toronto. In the past, when he played for Montreal and New York, Plant had complained about having asthma attacks whenever his team visited the city, but he said he'd find a way to work around the issue so he could play for the Maple Leafs and so that he could play very well. Then on Monday, we found out the Maple Leafs had made yet another deal that hadn't been announced, or maybe that Gregory didn't know anything about. We're not sure about that. Uh, Jim, the uh, papers re- in Minnesota and Toronto reported that Murray Oliver, whom we mentioned earlier as possibly being traded to Chicago, had in fact been dealt, but to the Minnesota North Stars. The return on this again was a player to be named later. General Manager Ren Blair said that a draft pick or a player on the present North Stars roster would not be involved in this deal. The trading of Oliver is not a great surprise. At a banquet just two weeks before this deadline and this deal took place, President Stafford Smythe had told folks that he didn't want Murray Oliver on his team, that Murray Oliver was a loser. Murray Oliver is no such thing. He's not a loser. He's a very fine person, and he was a very good player. Smythe is also the type of guy who would bring in a high-level talent like Jacques Plante. I think it's entirely possible that Smythe went ahead and completed these two deals on his own, doing an end around basically on his general manager, Jim Gregory. I'll bet Jim didn't know about these two transactions when he said on Saturday morning he was unable to make a deal. This is something that I would uh, pay attention to in Toronto. I'm not sure that Stafford Smythe has all that much faith in Jim Gregory, especially when he's pulling off crap like this. There are a number of other trades completed before Friday's deadline as well. Montreal's Sammy Pollock was probably the busiest general manager with four deals made before Friday midnight. In a bit of a surprising move, Pollock traded young center Jude Druin, who was the AHL first All-Star, as we mentioned earlier, to the Minnesota North Stars. Canadians will get a player to be named later as a result of this trade. 
that allow likely allows Minnesota to do Montreal a big favor by protecting a guy that uh, Sam Pollock wouldn't able to be keeping on his list. This is another way that Buffalo and Vancouver are really getting screwed by these types of transactions. Jude Druin would likely have been the very first player picked had Montreal not been able to uh, trade him. In Montreal's uh, largest trade of the evening, uh, in terms of players involved anyway, uh, they sent goalie Jack Norris and wingers Larry Mickey and Lucien Grenier, all who spent most of last year with the Montreal Voyagers, to the Los Angeles Kings. In exchange, the Canadians are getting left winger Leon Rochefort, defenseman Greg Boddy, and a young goalie from the University of Wisconsin by the name of Wayne Thomas. Pollock then sent forward Christian Bordalo to the St. Louis Blues, and that was for the oft-mentioned future considerations, and the Habs received some very unneeded cash as well. And finally, uh, Pollock made a deal to send left-winger Ernie Hickey, Billy's younger brother, to the Oakland Seals, and in exchange, the Habs are getting defenseman Francois Lacombe. There are apparently other players and considerations involved in the deal, but neither club would confirm just what those are. The Boston Bruins traded young forward Jim Lorenz, one of the best of the Central League centers this year, to the St. Louis Blues for what the Blues say were a player to be named later, but speculation had it that the return to Boston will be a second-round draft pick. And there was one blockbuster deal that would have shaken the hockey world that was apparently discussed in a serious manner but did not take place. The Boston Bruins offered center Derek Sanderson to the Detroit Red Wings in an even-up one-for-one swap for the Red Wings star young center Gary Unger. The Red Wings apparently pulled the plug on the deal at the last moment and that one fell through. NHL rosters are now frozen until the June expansion draft which takes place in the second week of that month. And of course another podcast, another week, another report of goofiness going on with the ongoing saga that is the Oakland Seals NHL franchise. Now by this time we had learned that the two bidders for the Seals were roller derby king Jerry Seltzer and the owner of Major League Baseball's Oakland Athletics, Charles O. Finley. Rumors were running rampant that the franchise would be sold and moved out of Oakland where most people felt the team would never have a chance to turn a profit. On Wednesday, NHL President Clarence Campbell was asked if the SEALs' involvement in the complex litigation going on in California over the ownership of the club was going to affect where the team would be located. Campbell unequivocally stated the SEALs will remain in the Bay Area. He said 
You can count on it. As most people know, stories have been circulating around hockey that the present owners, the Transnational Communications, will move the team to the new Nassau County Coliseum by the 1971-72 season. Now maybe we know why the NHL is putting a development team in that city, in that arena. They don't want the SEALs to have access to that, and neither do the New York Rangers. The lawsuit that we mentioned here is being brought by Transnational Communications to try and prevent former owners of the SEALs, the San Francisco SEALs hockey group, headed by Barry Van Gerbig, from foreclosing on TNC, whom they say hasn't lived up to the terms of the original purchase agreement. They say TNC has never delivered all the money they agreed to pay. The legal proceedings are scheduled to start this week, and many felt that the courts would order one of either Seltzer or Finley to take over the team, paying whatever the court determined the franchise was worth to the San Francisco Seals organization headed by Van Gerbeek. They also would have to agree, of course, to assume the considerable debt owed by the Seals to numerous creditors. The NHL would like to have this mess wound up before the June meetings begin in Montreal in the second week of June. Campbell had some other NHL news as well. The new expansion teams were announcing their team colors. The Buffalo Sabres will have a predominantly royal blue look to them with white and gold trim, while the Vancouver Canucks will also be predominantly blue with green and white trim on those uh, dark sweaters. Campbell also said that a committee has almost completed its work of setting up technical standards for professional hockey helmets. Amazingly, clear plastic models have been among those being considered. The governors at the meeting this week also decided that the meetings would be only three days in length instead of the usual four. Here's a quick update on the Kurt Flood case against Major League Baseball. Now, you remember that Kurt Flood, a very brave man in the face of mounting criticism, is uh, using United States antitrust laws to sue Major League Baseball for the right to be a free agent and not to be just shuffled around like he was this offseason in baseball when he was traded from the St. Louis Cardinals to the Philadelphia Phillies. That trial is slated to begin this week and we'll bring you developments as we get them each week on the podcast. This is an important case and important to hockey because professional team sports everywhere may find that their players will end up being free agents and that will cause quite a commotion in the national and international professional sports scene. I know this always bothered me back in 1970, why baseball was allowed to have its reserve clause and basically perform a restraint of trade on players who weren't allowed to sell their services to the highest bidder. Baseball in 1922 was declared exempt from uh, United States antitrust laws and a trial in 1953 upheld that exemption, but it's thought if this case goes to the Supreme Court, that exemption will once and for all 
finally end. Our last story today, this is one I've really dreaded writing and reporting on. Bothered me a lot in 1970. It bothers me a lot today. There's a lot of questions still not completely answered about this story 50 years later. And it's likely we're never going to know the truth. We're never going to know exactly what happened. But it was important news 50 years ago. And report on it, we must. I didn't like the way it was reported by some people 50 years ago. And I don't like it even still, even after doing more research and finding out how some of the reporting was done. We learned this week that future Hall of Fame and present Ranger goalie Terry Sawchuk had been in a New York hospital for about three weeks and the reason for the illness was very disturbing. The New York Times broke the story on Friday saying that Sawchuk was now quote, out of danger after surgery following a fracas with Ranger teammate Ron Stewart more than three weeks earlier. As a result of the surgery, Sawchuck's gallbladder had been removed. The story by Gerald Eskenazi of the New York Times suggested that Terry would remain in the hospital for about another week. Eskenazi contacted the Long Island, New York police, who told him that Sawchuck had been admitted to hospital after he said he was horse playing on his lawn with Ron Stewart, his teammate, and a roommate at Sawchuck's East Atlantic Beach home. The police report apparently said that Stewart had tripped Sawchuck by accident in the yard. They must have been playing after dark. Sawchuck's time of admission to the hospital was 1045 p.m. Eskenazi did some digging and he said that a source close to the Rangers who chose not to issue any statement after they learned of the incident said that Stewart and Sawchuck had returned home after visiting a local bar and got into an argument and were wrestling when Sawchuck was injured. A floor nurse at the Long Beach Memorial Hospital told Eskenazi that Sawchuck was too sick to receive visitors or even take a phone call. That thwarted Eskenazi's efforts to get into the hospital and speak to Terry, and it was probably a good thing once we found out a little later how serious his condition was. He shouldn't have had anybody in there talking to him except maybe close family. Rangers general manager Emil Francis, apparently having some knowledge of Sawchuk's condition, said that the goalkeeper's surgery was not of the type that would prevent him from returning to the National Hockey League next fall. It had been reported, as we mentioned earlier, that the Rangers might not protect Terry Sawchuk in the interleague or expansion drafts, choosing instead to keep young Jills Villemir to back up Eddie Jockman. Sawchuk was also rumored to be part of the Tim Horton deal. He would end up going to the St. Louis Blues, and Jock Plant was supposed to end up going to Toronto. But of course, this may mess all of that up. The very next morning, the Toronto Globe and Mail was on the story, reporting that Terry Sawchuk was recovering from what it termed secret surgery 
amidst rampant rumors. The Globe said that Sawchuck had been admitted to the hospital on April 29th. They reported the facts as described by Eskenazi in the Times, but also added that there were reports the accident had occurred at the tavern that the two players had visited earlier in the evening. The Globe and Mail also contacted Ron Stewart, who was at his summer home in Barrie, Ontario. Ron strongly denied to the Globe that he was even involved at all in the incident that landed Sawchuck in the hospital. They also said that Sawchuck had been contacted three times by a reporter by telephone, and each time the phone was hung up with no conversation. Stewart told the Globe and Mail that he intended to call the Rangers to find out how this rumor that he was involved had even gotten started. Sawchuck had apparently been in the hospital's intensive care unit and was just released from that on Thursday of this week. According to sources at the hospital, Terry had been listed in critical condition right up until that time. And on Saturday afternoon, another Toronto paper had a big story, and that was the Toronto Daily Star with one of those special to the star stories by a writer named Shirley Walton in the byline. We know who Shirley Walton is. She said she interviewed Sawchuck in the hospital, and we really don't know how she got in to see him. She later reported in a story in the November 1970 Hockey Illustrated magazine that she simply walked in with flowers and walked into Sawchuck's room. I'm wondering whether maybe she somehow didn't give the hospital the impression she might have been Terry's estranged wife. We don't know. She just said that that's how she got in there. We're not understanding that completely. The story carried various quotes from Sawchuck, with Terry saying he would never be able to come back from this situation. He was described by Walton as being upset that the story of his injury had become public. I got the definite impression from this news story that Sawchuck was not happy to have her there and it seemed to be a shame that she chose not to follow the earlier nurse's statement in the New York Times that Terry was too ill to receive visitors. In fact, the information she provides indicates that he probably was too ill to receive visitors. Sawchuck was known to loathe uh, reporters. He didn't like talking to the press at all, and I'm sure that's why the telephone was hung up three times when the Global Mail tried to uh, reach him. Yet Shirley Walton, in her own self-importance, Shirley Fischler, decided that she had more of a right to get in there and talk to a very ill Terry Sawchuck than Terry Sawchuck had the right to refuse to talk to her. There were other people that could have been contacted. She chose to invade Terry Sawchuck's privacy, which if you knew Terry Sawchuck, he cherished above all else. The information she provided was probably very accurate, should have been obtained elsewhere. The man should have been given a full chance to recover. He probably didn't enjoy the stress that he got from this interview knowing she was a reporter, if he knew she was a reporter. We'll have more on this story as future podcasts come out. We know, of course, Terry passed away from his injuries, and we'll have the story as it was reported then next week. So 
So what have we learned in this week's show? Well, we learned more about the condition of Michel Briere, and although there was some confusion about how well he was actually doing, we got the definite impression that Michel wasn't doing well. We learned just how messed up the Oakland Seals franchise saga is becoming, and there doesn't appear to be any easy solution in sight. And we found out that future Hockey Hall of Famer Terry Sawchuk had been in a hospital in Long Island, New York for several weeks after having been injured in an altercation with his Ranger teammate Ron Stewart and that these injuries were not minor in nature. With the NHL summer meetings just a couple of weeks away now, we'll set up that event for you as we get ready to cover the Buffalo-Vancouver expansion draft and the first ever amateur draft where all graduating junior hockey players in Canada are available to all clubs. That should be a lot of fun. Other stories we'll have for you next week. We'll cover yet more news, of course, on the Oakland Seals. Uh, Clarence Campbell and Alan Eagleson will appear as witnesses at the Kurt Flood versus Major League Baseball trial. I didn't see that one coming. And we'll have another update on the condition of Terry Sawchuk, plus a lot more off-season news. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole, and we cannot thank him enough for all his hard work. Very popular Juno-nominated Toronto indie rock group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our intro and exit music. And if you ever get a chance to see them perform live once all this uh, self-isolation and pandemic stuff is over with, take the opportunity. Other sound effects and musical pieces are added by Andy Cole as well. Our research comes from the Toronto Star and the Toronto Globe and Mail, and of course the many publications found at newspapers.com. Uh, don't forget to give a listen to the Let's Write a Song podcast by Andy Cole and his new project, the Council of Council of Dads podcast. It's a hilarious, semi-serious look at that television series, Council of Dads. You can find us on Twitter at at hockey 50 years and on facebook under 50 years ago in hockey we also have a wordpress site hockey 50 years ago.com and we are now on youtube just search for 50 years ago in hockey we're having a lot of fun bringing this to you each week uh, we're going to have a little bit more relaxed approach for during the uh, off season but we've got lots of interesting things planned and if everything breaks right we'll have a lot of fun Thanks very much, everyone. We will see you next time. When the ice